Father, it's exciting to know you, to come to this passage in Habakkuk, and even though in some ways it's beyond our comprehension, uh, the poetry requires uh, for us not being in that culture at that time with that language. We're trying to discern what's going on. But the clear things that stand out is that you make your own appearance and you carry out a- actions that are going to shock the world. And may we take that seriously. May we um, be thankful that we know you and that we can walk with you. May we turn away from sin. May we walk in righteousness and allow others to see Christ in us. So bless our time as we get into this passage. Help us to understand it and to apply it in our lives, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Habakkuk 3, looking at verses 3 to 15. I know it's a big chunk. Last week, two verses. Next week, four verses. But this goes with the package, just like the previous section in end of chapter 2. They go together, and it's easier to preach them that way. Um, chapter 1, um, Habakkuk is crying out to God to judge sin in Judah. And he says, I'm going to, but I'm going to use the Chaldeans. Not what he wanted to hear. A little bit of an echo, maybe? Okay. They're working on it. So uh, chapter 2, not the Chaldeans, as he cries out, and then basically God says to Habakkuk, trust me. Don't you hate it when God says that to you? (laughs) Especially when it's a really hard situation. And so here we are in chapter 3. He recognizes early on that God is amazing, and yet he asks him to, um, in wrath, remember mercy. And then he goes into this poem. As you, um, we don't hand out hymnals anymore. We ran out of we didn't have enough for everybody, and so we started putting everything up here. But if you're musical, you can ask for uh, music from Brian ahead of time and have it with you on Sundays if you'd like to sing parts, if you um, want to use that. But when you pick up that music or that hymnal, you recognize there's typically two names on the bottom. Once in a while, it's one name. Someone wrote the words, and then someone else wrote the music. The text and the music is what you see in there. Sometimes it's um, the same person doing that. But in this case, as we go into Habakkuk 3, 3 to 15, Habakkuk is writing the words. Which part is more important? The words. And how important is the music? It's important. It carries those words, helps you to understand them. It places a highlight. I only had a a minor in music, but I I was taught enough to understand how you build, what chords you use, when you want to bring in dissidence and and different things you do in writing a song. Um bringing all of this up in here as Habakkuk puts the words down. And then he tells us, we'll see you next week. In verse 19, it's for the choir director on my stringed instruments. So this is going to be put together. We just don't know who actually uh, wrote the music, how they put it together to music. But it was to be sung, as we mentioned last week, in worship. It was to be used as a constant reminder in their services, as a liturgy, as a formal method of worship. I'm still in an in a echo chamber. Or I'm, I'm better not I'm being here, though, not disappearing. So, yeah, we'll try to figure out what... Uh, I noticed Brian's microphone this morning was also echoing, and that one usually does not. So something's been um, crisscrossed there. So you get to hear me twice. No extra charge. Is that a good thing? Might keep you awake? Yeah. Catch the second one. Just that little delay in there. 
Hopefully that not at home. At home it's probably perfect and they're all just celebrating and telling me to get on with it. But this poetry here in the passage is figurative. This is what some people don't like. The preacher's going to stand up here and he's going to give you an interpretation. And then he's going to give you an application. And you're going to be sitting out there possibly saying, I don't think he ever figured out the meaning. I don't think he got onto the right track to begin with. And so as you're working with poetry, it's typically figurative. It's often imaginative. What they're trying to do is bring pictures into your mind. But they're doing it in a parallel form, sometimes in triplets, as they build this picture. And so there's emotions involved. And that's where music comes and plays a part. But the message is what's critical that we understand. So whether or not I sing this to you this morning or not, which I'm not, we could look at it from the word standpoint. And you see two things that Habakkuk really wanted to stand out. As he writes this together, he brings up in verses 3 to 7 a, a focus on God's appearance. And there's two parts of this. this now I'm moving into interpretation. I think Habakkuk has given him a near fulfillment of what's going to take place with Judah when the 70 years are completed and they're brought out of captivity because this is what he's warning them about. Habakkuk wrote before they're carried off by Nebuchadnezzar. Three different deportations over years of time. And then eventually the temple and the final one in 586, it is demolished, it is burned, and whatever of any value was carried off. Devastating to the nation and what was going to happen to the, to the worship that this song was even written for. So they were going to have to do it in special ways. But his appearance stands out. When you get to 8 to 15, it's God's actions that are emphasized. And I'm not saying there isn't some appearance in the second half and some actions in the first. But the primary idea of what's standing out here are those two. If you keep those in mind, you will not get lost when the preacher tries to explain this. That'd be a good thing, right? The echo went away. Now you've got to listen once. Is that going to be hard? Hope not. Say it twice. That, yeah, that'd be a good idea. I did that in um, Colombia one time when you had to do it in two languages. Once is, good. <laughs> once is good. We have a vote over here for once. But when you have to preach it with a different language, it, just, it shortens your message. Or you have to sit longer and bring your lunch. So you make up your mind. But here is the appearance of God. He's, he's bringing up two key words right when he starts off. God comes. It's an imperfect, which brings out the idea that it's incomplete action. All right? This, this picture here, according to Vine, so I want to keep reminding you, I'm not a super saint. I, I can slowly read Hebrew, but I cannot tell you what it means anymore, generally speaking. Once in a while, there's a word in there. But the, the idea that Vines brings out is he explains this in the Old Testament part of the expository dictionary is this word here, God comes, is, uh, connotes the movement of sp in space. It's from one place to another. It could mean to come and to return. That's where I, I, when I saw that, and again, this brought up in, in Vines, I realized this could be a twofold message he's trying to bring up here. God is going to deliver Judah. It's already been laid out. It's 70 years. They knew that would take place. From 606, first deportation, to 536. But the, the revealing part that comes out in here is the Lord is coming in judgment on, this, on the unrighteous. He's coming in to blessing to the righteous, ultimately. Why does Christ return to the earth? Why is he coming back? Isn't it twofold? Isn't it to judge the unrighteous and to do what with the righteous? Take him to be with him, 
put him in his presence to reign with him forever and ever back on planet Earth. And so as he's trying to stress here, I think he may be bringing out two different aspects, especially with this incomplete action of the imperfect in the Hebrew. God comes. He's revealing himself from Taman. Now, as you look into this, and again, there's a lot of debate, is this an individual place or is it a general location? Um, Some recognize it as a rocky fortress and potentially the capital of Edom at one time, east of Paran. Well, that helps a lot because then the second part shows up here that the Holy One is coming from Mount Paran. And so there's some things brought out here. They're not sure on the second, but I think it's the reason for that is because they have messed up the location of Sinai. Mount Sinai, you think, is located in the Sinai Peninsula, but it's not. You go look in the location, you go do the archaeology, you go try to reveal what's going on, and Mount Sinai is not in the Sinai Peninsula. They need to rename that place. You go look at where they describe, where they think it was, none of it fits. But when you study it and recognize that what they crossed was the Red Sea, not some little sea of reeds, And again, I may be losing you on some of this if you're not staying up with with Scripture. But they crossed the Red Sea. It was a wall of water on both sides. It crushed the Egyptian army. And when they crossed over, they went into the land of Midian, was one of the names. It's northern Saudi Arabia today. Part of it kind of is Jordan as it comes down to that region. But as you recognize that there is a mountain over there, they have done research, and the the Saudi Arabia has built a fence miles and miles around this area to keep people out. But when you look at it, even with binoculars, you can see a burnt mountaintop. You can see within a short distance a rock that is evidence of water flowing out of it that is dry as a bone. You can see many things there, an area where they would have gathered, where they would have crossed the Red Sea, and on and on it goes. And so he's probably talking more about that region there, not the Sinai Peninsula, but over to the kind of the south and more to the east of where Israel is today. A little bit of Jordan, a lot of Saudi Arabia. And so as he's talking about God revealing himself and coming, you ask yourself, why does he mention these? Why the area of the Edomites? Why a focus here on this whole region that would have been Mount Sinai? And you go back and you, you recognize that when he starts off this poem, putting it to music, he wants them to remember God's deliverance of the nation of Israel once before. When was that? What's it called? The Exodus. And the Exodus includes everything from going out of Egypt with the Passover in Exodus 12 all the way into their entrance into the land of Canaan. And that took you all the way to the end of Deuteronomy with the death of Moses. He wasn't allowed to go in. A lot of information is packed in there. What Habakkuk is going back to, remember what he struggled with? God, take care of Judah, spank them. I'm going to use the Chaldeans. No, 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 no. That's not the right way to go. Do you not understand what they're like? And remember how we covered it? We walked through all of that. How horrible, how fierce they were. All the bad things they did. And he goes, I'm going to take care of you, Habakkuk. I'm going to redeem Judah because I promised. I have a covenant with my chosen people. But how many of them are the remnant that would survive? The majority are going to be annihilated. Not because of God, because of the rejection of God's solution. 
their lack of faith, their lack of belief and trust in him, their lack of evidence that shows righteousness in their lives. The church struggles with that every single day. You're constantly being tempted to give in a little bit, give in a little bit, not bring up Jesus at work because that could get, cause problem, not to have a Bible on my desk because that could cause problem, not to walk in righteousness, not to bow my head when it's time to eat lunch because that could cause, all of a sudden I find myself chipping away, chipping away, and I'm not being real. I'm being phony. What am I afraid of? Man versus fear of God. Habakkuk was God's prophet. Habakkuk is sold out to him. Habakkuk wants righteousness. You can see that in the whole letter. He just wants it done his way, and he wants God to take care of it really quick. Remember that one message I said I would just point? If I had the ability, you're gone, you're gone, you're gone. I could clean up the church in no time. Who would I pick? How would you start treating me? Fakes. You would become hypocrites. You'd become just like the Pharisees, putting on a show. Because last week, five people just, gone. Pastor caught him sleeping, gone. (laughs) Wearing the wrong color, whatever the color is. I'm colorblind, so it doesn't matter, gone. We don't don't have that power. We don't have that authority. But it's what Habakkuk wanted, because he wanted what was right. You You ever been that way? I want what's right, and I want it now. Dads get that way. Very demanding. They get loud when they get that way too. Some dads get physical. But he's bringing up, the first thing he wants us to notice in this appearance is God coming, revealing himself in the same way he did before from the Edomites and what they had done to Israel. And he says, God comes from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, and then he throws in this little word, Selah. It indicates a pause or a break. In the song. Now, there's three ways it could be. We're not sure how they used it. One is they think it may have simply been a raise in the key to another level, like Brian did a little bit this morning. Maybe a raise in the volume. Maybe it just got louder. But that one doesn't really stand out to me. Secondly, they say it can reflect what was um, in the song, kind of a more you're just taking a little bit of time to, to think about it. Stop and meditate would be the idea behind it. And a third option that was possible is special instruments would be used at that time. Kind of like a fanfare when the trumpets go da-da-da-da. Kind of getting your attention. Why do it after verse 3? And verse 3 isn't even done yet. Halfway through verse 3. What's he trying to point out? You all have Revelation 1-7 memorized, right? You guys read Revelation on a regular basis. You love the book because it's a revelation of... Jesus Christ, and what does one seven say? Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. And then what's it say about those who pierced him? Even those who pierced him. How's that possible? They're dead. You get the impression that when Jesus Christ returns, all of creation in the grave and alive, will recognize. But they're focusing on the one coming, the one who is holy. And he says, that is a big deal. That was the silence we just talked about. Remember that in chapter 2, verse 20? But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. We brought up Zephaniah, Zechariah, and, and the book of Revelation 
when there's silence in heaven for about a half hour, and it's not because the women weren't there yet? You've heard that one. I didn't make it up. And I don't believe it, so you have to leave me off the bad guy list. It's just a joke. Bernie, don't quote that one. (laughs) Off the list. But he's trying to bring out here, this is it. Jesus Christ, God the Son, is coming back in all of his glory, and everybody's going to see him. But initially, all Habakkuk is trying to point out, I think, is this twofold thing. He's coming back for Judah. He will deal with their enemies. They get wiped out in one night. Gone. Daniel transfers. He's he's got a union card, so he gets to go right from the the Chaldeans right over to the, who's the next guys? Uh, Chaldeans, Babylonians, same people. Unique group there, the Medes and the Persians. All right? Transferred in one night. Right after the handwriting on the wall. You kind of go, well, I wish God would act that way today. Would you? You really want him to? You get the whole package. You don't get to pick and choose. I just want God to write down what his will is for my life in the next month. He can write really small. Just pick a part of the church wall here. Leave it there until I'm, I'm good or I copied it and then I, I'll paint over it. Is that what you want? Well, you got to take the whole thing. Because when God start, starts writing on walls, it's a time of judgment. We got a serious problem. And he's writing on the wall to a Gentile, to a heathen audience, to a man who should have learned from his father, who finally humbled himself, finally believed and recognized one God in the book of Daniel. But Belshazzar didn't believe. And he's judged. And this is the separation you need to fix in your head. You cannot ride the fence. You cannot play games and live one way in the world and then come to church and act like everything's religious and spiritual and um, that I'm a righteous person now. What do you like on Mondays? You know, they let you do ride-alongs with police officers. I want to do a work-along. I would like to be able to sit in somebody's office and just listen. But I like to be incognito. I want to kind of be hidden. I don't want them to know I'm there. So all the people coming into the office, I get to hear everything of what goes on in your life and how you respond to it when they come in and tell you a dirty joke, when they come in gossiping or complaining about the boss, when they come in doing stuff, how do we respond to those things? Most of the time, we let them go. God was not treating Judah that way. This was going to be really serious. So his appearance in the spectacular form in the second half of verse 3, his splendor covers the heavens. How big is that? His glory describes it here, intensively clothes the heavens like a garment. All of the heavens. This is who God is. He's holding himself back for our sakes. We couldn't take his presence at this point. But his splendor covers the heavens, and the earth is full of his praise. And that word for praise there really is the idea of renown or fame. There's an abundance, an overflowing, a domination of God's fame in in the earth. That's reality, but that's what everybody are are resisting today. When he comes back, the earth is going to gather together. You go over in the book of Revelation. The kings of the earth gather together into the, the Middle East to fight the one who's coming. That tells you there's some time in there. It isn't a Jesus Christ shows up and, and snatches everybody and disappears. That isn't how he's coming. Every eye is going to behold him. 
And when he comes back, there's gonna be enough time in the fifth trumpet judgment, just the fifth alone in chapter nine of Revelation, it's gonna be five months. The armies have time to gather. They see him in the air, they see him in all of his glory, all of his splendor here, and it goes on to describe him in more ways, and they hate him. They have new weapons, you know. If you saw, seen in the news, they're finally coming out. A lot of the uh, military pilots are admitting uh, that this isn't aliens from some other planet. They're finally starting to recognize these are new advanced weapons that are being used against our pilots. And when objects turn in the air, like they're facing the plane and the jet, have you seen some of you guys? You've seen some of this? Yeah, okay, a few of you. And they turn in the air, that kind of defies certain laws, doesn't it? Try turning a jet sideways while it's moving in the same direction. It'd rip it to shreds. And then they zoom off, and they're talking about hyperspeed when it comes to missiles. I'm getting your attention. I tell you guys are waking up. (laughs) You're more afraid of what man might be able to do. Man is puny. Man is nothing. We need to get God back up in the position that Habakkuk's finally getting to in chapter 3. He's all-powerful. He's everywhere present. He knows all about any of their weapons and all their advancements. And they're going to gather together, and it probably will take months to get the kings of the earth gathered together in the Middle East. They think they're going to take on Jesus. Psalm 2 says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. What is wrong with you people? We don't want you. So we'll throw everything we've got at you. How's that going to work? Are you living like Jesus Christ is coming back? Maybe. This is what Habakkuk's finally recognizing here. In verse 4, his radiance, this, this brightness, is like the sunlight, full daylight. Try looking at the sun. Now, don't. You'll blame it on me. And, and us older people cannot be out in it very long. We burn. But his radiance his brightness, is as bright as sunlight is brighter. His rays are flashing from his hand. He's trying to describe here in verse 4 this idea of lightning flashes out of his hand. God didn't have a hand, but Jesus Christ would. He'd have a body. You could kind of put it that way. Is that what he's using? There is the hiding of his power as he goes on here. And what he's basically saying with these phrases is his brightness is beyond your comprehension, like the sun at noon and way beyond. His rays flashing, the lightning coming from his hand is is dazzling, and there is a hiding of his power. His real power, his real strength is veiled. His omnipotence is being held back. He doesn't use everything all the time. Is that who you believe in? If it's true, we just, I had a conversation this morning with, with a gentleman about what faith really looks like. If it's true, you act on it. If I really believe Jesus Christ is God, that he's coming back, that he's my savior, that I want to bring him glory, I act like it. Who do you love more than any, but anybody or anything else? It should be the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is that? Because he first loved me. If that transition happened in my life, then I'm changed. I'm a new creature. Everything changes in me. It's not an emotional thing that I, that I might get wound up on Sunday mornings from. It's a lifestyle. It's hard. 
You're going to have to make decisions. You're going to have to pay a price. It's going to cost you to be a believer. It's not going to get easier. It's going to get harder. Habakkuk already struggled with that. He looked around at the states in, in his United States, and he said, God, they're all turning liberal. They're approving, and you start making a list. You name the sins out there. They're all being accepted, and not only accepted, they're being pushed on you. And God's righteous people did what? Not only did they not go along, they went to warn them. As I've shared many times, and I hate to keep picking on the same thing. So I'll pick on transgender this morning. You, you don't understand. If you go in and study what they're encouraging children to do, they aren't ready to make those decisions. They're encouraging them to make physical changes they cannot undo later. And some of them don't work. They're not telling you that either. And I've experienced and seen some of that, where you, an individual, they try to hormonally keep them suppressed, and it doesn't work. Now what do you got? A mess. God created people one way. And we go along, we say, well, I, I don't want to cause trouble. I don't want people getting upset with me. And I know you can't necessarily do it at work, on your time at, at work, but, but you've got to go back to people and you need to explain to them, your sin is leading you to death. This is not going to satisfy you. The, the death rate of homosexuals 20, 30 years ago used to be about 42. You hear that in the news? Nope. It kills you. It's sin. It leads to death. It doesn't satisfy. That's why they go from partner to partner to partner. They're doing the same thing now. They're moving on to the next phase with this whole transgender and all the alphabet soup that's listed. Well, obviously, when you create so many more letters, what are you saying? The initial letters weren't enough. It will never satisfy. I come alongside them. I touch them. I hug them, I share with them, my life with them, but I share Christ's words with them. I let them know that I love them and, and God has an answer and it isn't where they're going. And even though the world's lying about it. And this is what Habakkuk was struggling with and wanting to fix Judah about. They were turning from the only true God. They were turning from the only true way of life and peace and joy. And it says here in verse four, on top of all of that, he's holding back. He's been holding back for how many years? When was this written? It was more for Judah. It was a focus on Judah, but some of his future, about 2,600 years ago, he's holding back since Christ came. They killed his son. Better yet, he laid down his life. 2,000 years, God has been long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. Why? Aren't we like Habakkuk telling God, hurry up, God. Hurry up before I really have to suffer. I don't want to go to jail. I don't want him to take away everything I own because I'm defying the system. Why not? Whose stuff is it? Not mine. You're a steward. It's on loan. And it's, it's a question of how we use it and what we do with it. And God can just easily take it away and give it back again. Or he can feed you with ravens or whatever he chooses to do. That's when life gets exciting. And we don't want to trust him. And Habakkuk finally came to that realization that he could be excited, excited about life in spite of everything, in spite of Judah and her sin, just in spite of the Chaldeans coming. And he's kind of sitting there. Remember where he went? 
up to his tower to kind of wait. Guess what we're doing in America right now? If we don't share the gospel, if we don't act properly as salt and light, which we are, if you're a believer, America is going down the tubes. When's the last time you put salt on a wound? Works. Oh, there's the natural remedies are the best by far. A little bit of salt and water, and you can snort it, clean your, your sinuses out. There's all kinds. Salt is valuable on so many levels. But when you have to deal with a serious issue and you pour it in an open wound, there's pain. And you don't apologize and go get a bunch of water and try to get the salt out of there. You let it do what it's supposed to be doing at an appropriate level. I knew one person that thought a little salt's good, a lot of salt's better, and put a ton of salt in a glass of water and snorted it. You ever, you ever, well, if you've done that before, you understand. You, you can get too much. And then you kind of go crazy for about three minutes until it subsides. It doesn't kill you normally. But this is what righteousness does in a world. It's, you're putting salt on wounds. Why are we so surprised when they react? Why, why is Habakkuk so surprised with, with what God is going to use here? There may even be some Chaldeans that come, come to the Lord, that become righteous like Nebuchadnezzar. There may have been some that were there that weren't going to do the bad, nasty things because of their king and what they had learned from him. I don't know, but he's, he's wrestling through here, and he, what he's going back to is the only thing that's positive, the only thing that I can really be rest assured about, that I can focus on and know it's never going to go away, is the fact of who God is. He's holy. He has splendor and radiance, and yet he holds back. And so as he wrestles with this whole appearance thing, he gets down to verse 5, and he points out how startling this is. It says, before him goes pestilence. Now, again, I can't take a lot of time to explain this because it's a bigger chunk. But literally, this word ties back in with debar, which means to speak. So where do you get pestilence out of that? And you realize what he's pointing out here, it, what goes before him is this sentence of death. His words, his promise, this message of condemnation is what he's bringing up here. That's what goes before God. What God says, he means. More and more I'm watching. I taught for a few weeks about parenting, and now I'm watching people in the world. You go to a meal, if you're able to, now we're back out there. You, you go do things, and you, and you listen for other stories people are sharing, and you find out mothers and fathers are not following through. They're saying it, and they're not backing it up. Then don't say it. You're, you're better off never saying anything to your child. Don't tell them no if they're going to look at you and go do it, and you just say, oh, I can't do anything with them. Don't do it. Let them learn the hard way. Let them burn themselves or get run over by the car. They'll learn more from that than from you being inconsistent. You're destroying them. And Proverbs, as we brought out, says you don't love them. If you don't correct them for doing wrong, if you're not even able to do that with your own family, how are you supposed to help the world? Consistency is critical. How consistent is God? Totally. God cannot lie, right? So does he ever lie? No. But, but maybe, maybe once in a while. Maybe Jesus was tempted at all points like we are, so maybe he gave in one time. No, it makes it clear in Hebrews 4. Never, never gave in once. God is consistent. Who am I trying to imitate? 
Lord Jesus Christ. What should I be in my life? Consistent. No, I'm not talking about being a machine or being, you know, every, every people don't matter. I do this, I've got to do this. And at 8 o'clock, you're ready, go. I've got to do that. And then when 9.30 hits, uh, i got to do that. We're not, I'm not talking about acting that way. I'm talking about what, what you say you mean. Psalm 15. You swear to your own hurt, and you do not change. You tell people what you're going to do, and then you do that. I thank God, in spite of some things that were missing in my life, my dad was one of the most consistent people I ever knew. When he said something, he meant it. And you better believe him, because it could cost you. So when he said something, he didn't have to say it a second time. Part of that was a little bit of abuse. It wasn't horrible. I've heard worse, far worse stories from other people. But it was like, obey or die. That was kind of like the two options. I chose to live. And I was the compliant one. I don't know if some of my family watches me online, but we had a couple that were willing to test a little more. Thought maybe they could outrun him or that he would notice, something like that. Was my dad perfect? No. Are you going to be perfect? No. What do you do with imperfections? Confess them to God. Confess them to people. Don't do it again. At least to your best advantage. But there are none in God. And as he exalts him here, he's bringing him up. He says, before him goes pestilence. Once in a while. Is that what he said? No. Before him goes pestilence. This message of death is what's going to come out. What he said he meant, and he's going to follow it through. And then secondly, in verse 5, he says, before him, plague. Well, I should, shouldn't put that in there. Plague comes after him. This little idea of plague here is flame. It probably ties in with the idea of the firebolt or the fact that uh, even lightning, that God, Jesus Christ is going to come in all of his glory, and he's going to burn up everything when he comes. And in this case, this word for plague really is a firebolt, and it's this follows close behind. This is his method of destruction. It's fire. And so you go back and you realize, as he ties in this picture, and probably talking about the Exodus, in Exodus 7 to 11, there's 10 plagues. And you see a variety of ways that God was getting their attention. Moses would tell them what's going to happen, tell them when it was going to happen, and the next day it happened, and the, the Egyptians went, oh, bitch can't do that again. And they would ignore it. Initially, the magicians would copy it, fake it, whatever it took. And then eventually the magicians had to admit, oh, we can't do this. This really is supernatural. This is really beyond our abilities to trick peoples. And so he went through those ten. He got their attention. And he was calling Israel to show their faith, to show the fact that they really believed and they trusted him by some of the things they did, including all the way up to the Passover, you sprinkle the blood or your firstborn dies. How often do, are you tempted and I'm tempted and we say to God, well, maybe he's not watching right now. I think I can get away with this. I couldn't do that with my dad 98% of the time. You know how they tell you mothers have eyes in the back of their heads? My dad had eyes in the back of his head. And you learn very quickly, don't cross him consistent, multitasker, he could follow through with things. And so you, you bring that in. And so I learned that if that's how my, he, my earthly father was like, what do you think my heavenly father is like? When he says he's going to deal with something, how well should I believe him? Look over at Hebrews 10. Hold on to Habakkuk. 
Hebrews chapter 10. We're going through Hebrews on Wednesday nights. We will cover this in more detail, but I just want to read a couple of verses here. Chapter 10, 26 and 27. He's writing to the, the, the readers that read the book of Hebrews, and he was trying to explain to them, you're either a possessor, a true believer, or a professor. It's just coming out of your mouth, but it doesn't, it doesn't exist in your life. He's exposing that all the way through the letter, and we'll talk about that on Wednesday nights. But in verse 26, he says, he warns them, for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There is nothing to cover you for rejecting Jesus Christ. But, in verse 27, a certain terrifying expectation of judgment, look how he explains it, and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. That's how he's coming back. He will burn up. The idea that he brings here, Habakkuk is talking about these rays flashing from his hand, and, and you acknowledge that it's bad. Look at verse 31. Hebrews 10, 31. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. How well are people believing that today? I don't stand up here as a perfect example, and I don't need my, my children are not going to try to pump me up and say, yeah, Dad, you're perfect. And I know you want to say that, but I'm just saying, hold, hold back. That's, that's not what God's looking for. He's looking for a faithful child. A child who pursues righteousness. A child who sins and realizes when their conscience kicks in because they have one, they haven't seared it and driven it away, that they need to do something about it. And they may bring the broken thing and confess. That has happened the other day with something. And, and it's like, and it wasn't a big deal. But it does a father's heart good to realize his children are being honest and real. And I could get into more, but I, I, won't, I won't share personal stories. But the... Struggle here is this terrifying thing. Men today are not terrified of God, but they will be. When he really comes back and they send their hypersonic, super hypersonic, um, whatever you want to call the stuff that they're out there. My dad worked for Lockheed. He was an engineer for Lockheed for years, and he'd come home and the, net, the popular science or mechanics or whatever would show up, and on the front cover, the newest, greatest stuff out there, and my dad would go, we were working on that 20 years ago. Now you're realizing there's some things they were working on 50 years ago. That hypersonic being able to defy the laws of gravity and just take off with somebody, you're assuming somebody's in it, but maybe they're not, maybe it's not manned. Howard Hughes was working on that back in the 50s. Somebody figured out something. God's in trouble, right? God's worried now. Oh, no. Remember what, what Satan wanted to do? He wanted to be like God. Oh, no. What did he tell Adam and Eve what happened? You, you, he's holding you back. You will be just like God. And, and he's always offering this to people, and they, they're, they're swallowing it. Hook, line, and sinker, because I get to live like I want, and then when God tries to get intervene, I'm going to take him out. Thank you. That's exactly what God thinks of that. You're going to do what? Do you understand who I am? Do you understand who you are? I made your brain. I gave you the ability to collect all these materials and minerals and, and all the things that you're putting together into these spacecraft and into these weapons. And you, you think I don't understand or that I can't stop you? When Jesus Christ was on earth, remember what the Romans did? 
or the Jews. They came to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane with the Romans. And, and how, did, how did they respond when he told them who he was? They fell on the ground. Do you understand who these guys are? They're not little pipsqueaks. There are your special forces would be the equivalent of that. The ones leading this entourage. Maybe as many as 600 men that went to get him. Why? What were they afraid of? Jerusalem rioting because they looked up to him so, so much. They fell down. What do they do when an angel or two show up at the tomb? They passed out. Do you understand that's a death sentence for a Roman soldier? You better not pass out on duty. They will execute you, and they'll do it publicly in a way that nobody else wants to fall asleep. But they didn't. They let them go in, tell them what happened, and they said, we're going to cover this up. It wasn't that you passed out or fell asleep. It's, it's the disciples stole the body or whatever different theories they come up with, with none of them fit. And so here he's struggling with the appearance ultimately of Jesus Christ returning, God the Son. It is spectacular. It is startling. Look at verse 6. He stood and surveyed the earth. Uh-oh. He took his stand. This literally is the idea that he stopped, ready to act. So you almost get this idea when every eye is going to behold him, and he's going to be in one place. See, they, people make up all this stuff. Jesus Christ is coming back the same way he left, in a physical body about six feet tall. I don't know how tall he was. That's it. And he's going to be in one place because he's coming down, and his feet are going to touch on the Mount of Olives. So the, the priority and the focus of all of that is going to be Jerusalem. But every eye is going to behold him. How's that going to work? That's not my department. But he's trying to tell you here. He took his stand. He stopped ready to act. And then it says he surveyed the earth. This is the idea to measure the earth visually with his eyes. So it's kind of like dad walking onto a scene that he told you not to get something out. His tools in the garage. Do not play with the tools in the garage. And dad walks out, takes his stand, and he just kind of goes. And they're all over the place. Some of them might even be broken. And then it says he looked. And so he's, this, is, this is where you get the look. He, he gazed at, he inspected, he observed this thing, and his little beady eyes zero right in on you. He gazed like an inspector making observation. And then it tells us that he startled the nations. This carries the idea to make the nations leap in terror. He made them jump to start up, kind of be startled in, in that one sense. They're get, he's getting their attention. And then he explains, yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered. How long is planet Earth going to last? The ancient hills collapsed. They sank down. The mountains are broken. The, the hills are, are sinking low. But his ways, it's going to see the contrast in here, his ways are everlasting. This is what he's trying to bring up. Mountains and hills shattered and collapsed. Temporary. His ways are everlasting, unending, continual, eternal. This is what he's trying to contrast. You don't know who God is. We don't believe him. We, we don't pray because we don't really think he answers prayer. I've been praying for Bev. She's been sick for five weeks. God can answer and say, no. God can say, no, I'm going to give it a number of weeks because people are serving her. She's learning some things that you don't like to learn in those situations. 
I don't know what all of his purposes are. But in all of my prayers, he said, no, 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 no. Trust me. Isn't that what he said to Habakkuk? Yeah, I'm going to judge, but not your way. Oh, why don't you just bring in the Judah's own army, the troops, and let them kind of go in there and take, no. Why don't you bring in a plague and kind of go after the ones that you know are unrighteous, and they can all drop dead, and we all know, like Ananias and Sapphira, we'll, we'll be done. No. I'm going to bring in the Chaldean army. I'm going to bring them in three times. They're horrible. Remember chapter one? And the last time, they're going to destroy your temple. What? Yeah. Your worship stinks to me. They're taking it all away. It's only earthly anyway. Remember in, in book of Revelation, you see the, the temple in heaven, the real deal. And the earthly ones just copied after it. it it's okay. But, but he's trying to stress this whole, whole idea between the temporary and the eternal. And then he says in verse 7, I saw the tents of Cushion. Under distress, the tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. What he's bringing up here, the tents of cushion are puny, they're temporary, and he says they're under distress. They're troubled. They're in misery. I think this may be closer to a nearer fulfillment, but it's going to be the same thing. The Babylonians are the ones destroyed in Revelation 17 and 18. But then he says the tent curtains in the land of Midian. This would refer more to the tent hangings as described in the lexicon. Their possessions, they're, they're quaking, they're agitated, they're, they're, they're trembling or quivering. And you, you, you see the pictures on the wall of their tents or whatever they put on their tents. You see stuff shaking. Some of it may be falling down. This is the picture he's getting. They're finally getting the message as his appearance goes from spectacular to startling to very, very scary. And so look at the actions in verse 8. Did the Lord rage against the rivers? Or was thine anger against the rivers? Or was thy wrath against the sea? Remember, this is all poetry. He's trying to bring out a picture here for you to imagine in your mind. He says that thou didst ride on thy horses, on thy chariots of salvation. He's bringing up here, and he mentions rage, anger, wrath. Uh, this, um, his wrath is kindled. His anger's burning. That's the first one. Then this, it's, the second one is more of an angry face. Kind of like how your dad looks when you broke all of his tools. And then wrath, this indignation or outburst of fury would be the third one. But he says it's against the rivers. And what rivers did God do that to? As you go back historically and look at the Exodus, what happened? This is where you have to wake up and give me an answer. What rivers is he talking about as you go in here? Okay, so Jordan is the latter one. What was the early one? What happened to the Nile? It turned to blood. God went after certain things. His wrath is kindled. His anger against the rivers. And he may be talking about the Nile and the Jordan River and some of the things that went on with all of that. That's Joshua 3, 14 to 17. And then he says, thy wrath was against the sea. And he's bringing in a much bigger picture. What sea did his wrath go against? The Red Sea. You think the fish liked it? What happened to all those creatures and what happened to what was down there? Although when you see pictures of it, you realize this is a very unique place. There's only one high spot crossing the Red Sea and it's in a one location and it's sand going all the way through. And the Bible talks about P and I forget the last part of the word. 
But they're, they're trapped. The Egyptians' army's coming down on them, and they go out, and Moses parts the sea. And, and so this water moves about. You can't imagine what happened to the creatures that were in it when it all came back. Did God say, okay, you guys, move away about a mile. This is going to be really bad when it collapsed. It killed them all. The pressures had to be severe. But his anger raged. He it took it out on the Red Sea to get the children of Israel out of the land. And he's still bringing up those illustrations here. And then he talks about um, the, thou didst ride on thy horses. He, he kind of puts this picture of God in his majestic power. Remember the horses of the Chaldeans back in chapter 1, verse 8? He said, their horses are swifter than leopards, kind of like hyperspeed. And keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen came from afar. They fly like an eagle, swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces moves forward. They collect captives like sand. Now, how did those horses of the Chaldeans compare to God's horses? Remember, he's putting this in a poetical form. Where, where are horses involved in the return of Christ? He's on one. What color is it? White. I can see white, so that'll be a good color. And what, who else is on horses? All of his holy ones or the angels with him. Many want to teach you that this is the church coming back. It is not. And I can give you many verses to show you otherwise. This is an angelic army, and what are they on? Horses. How are you going to recognize Jesus? I've only said this a hundred times. He's going to be the really bright one in the middle. He's the one leading. When there's a general in an army, I just watched the Alamo the other day, and the general of the, in, of the Mexican army was on a white horse. Nobody else was. All decked out. And so you can imagine what this is like, and he's trying to bring out this picture, God's majestic power being brought out. And what's it all for? Salvation. It's the physical rescue of his righteous ones. This is what he's after. Thy bow was made bare. All he's saying there is um, his bow was taken out of its sheath. His bow was prepared to be used, exposed, uncovered. And then he says here, the rods of chastisement. Literally, the shafts is the word for rods. It describes those arrows that go with the bow. And these of chastisement were sworn. And there's a lot of controversy on what's going on there. But many just think this is just trying to talk about God's covenant. What he promised in an oath, what he decreed, and what was fixed is going to be carried out. And then he throws in another selah. What's a selah? It's, it's stopping, a pause, get your attention. They could have done it in some different ways, but all of a sudden they're just kind of going like, think about that. This is scary. Yes, human armies coming in to harm people is scary, happening on a regular basis around our world. And it may happen in America. What we have to stay focused on is what Habakkuk finally realized. God's army, God's purpose, God's promises are going to be fulfilled. That's what you want to focus on. And so he goes into this last section here of the... Um, I put down his deference. There's, there's deliverance clearly being made. This deference is carrying the idea that God's holding back in many ways. And look what he says here. Thou didst cleave the earth with rivers. 
That's kind of interesting. Hard to nail down literally means he ripped open violently the earth. The only picture that comes to my mind is the sons of Korah. Then you say to yourself in in number 16, well, how could that be like a river? So you look up the word rivers and you realize sometimes he's talking about underground streams or sources of rivers. I don't know if it fits in there or not, but, but it's what God does. He can open up the mountains in the second part. Cleave the earth, the mountains saw thee, and quaked. Another very interesting description that he's going to bring out here. The, the mountains writhed in pain, similar to a woman in childbirth, twisted in anguish. This kind of comes out when Moses is on Mount Sinai, and they're all looking from a distance, and they're afraid to touch the mountain because of what's going on there. He says, the downpour of water swept by. The flood of rain swept by. It overtook those individuals. I'm not sure what he's getting back to. I didn't write it. Someday I'll sit in class and have somebody teach me about the book of Habakkuk. But the deep uttered his voice. Again, another interesting thing. The deep is simply the sea. It, it uttered forth or roared out this loud sound. The whole earth is involved in what God is doing in his judgment. And then it says it lifted on high its hands. Again, these massive waves, as you describe in poetry, the sea or the ocean being involved. Then he shows another one. The sun in verse 11 and the moon stood in their places. Same word he used up in verse 3. A little different idea there. But they stopped shining. And and it, it describes it here as he goes into it. He says, they went away. And literally what it's trying to bring up, the light disappeared. It's as if they weren't there anymore. Why would that be? What does Revelation tell you? The sun goes dark. The moon will not show its light. They don't go away. What happened to them? The sky split open. And all that's happening here, it's all a focus on Jesus Christ. He's going to do some unique things initially to protect Judah and bring a remnant through. But ultimately, it's going to be this fulfillment, I believe, in the end when Christ himself returns. He says, they went away at the light of thine arrows. As God sends out his lightning bolts, these, these human weapons that he's going to, or what they would come down to humans as weapons, and at the radiance of thy gleaming spear, the splendor, the shining of all that God's going to be, I don't think we've begun to understand. You go to Matthew 17 with the transfiguration, and there's, there's this amazing glow and the shock and all that goes on there, but it's just a temporary little picture you get. And all of a sudden it's over. The disciples, three of them, want to build tabernacles. We have no idea what's coming. I don't think we really understand very, very little about Jesus Christ. He's a lamb, slain. He was a baby born by a virgin. He was just a man. He died, his blood shed, yielded up his life. He resurrected, but maybe 500 saw him at one time. Wait till he comes back. This is the picture Adam and Eve would have had in the Garden of Eden. Jesus Christ in all of his glory. God wasn't holding back until they sinned and they were pushed out. And yet he came back looking for them, which is a reminder of redemption that we need to go back to. We, we only want to share with people that seem open. Somebody that comes up and said, hey, I've been reading my Bible and I got some questions. Oh, I can handle that. Hey, I've been burning Bibles this last year. Do you have any Bibles I can burn? I hate God. 
You don't believe in him, do you? And you jump up and say, I can help with that. Not so readily. What are we afraid of? You're going to die. That, that's already a given. You just don't know when necessarily. What are we afraid of? Fear the one who can send your soul into hell. Don't fear man. And as he comes in here, he's trying to explain to them in this last section. He goes from creation that is shocked at this, the, the action of the creation, they're shocked at a God who's coming back in wrath. But it's not aimed at the creation. It simply is involved because of, it's part of what man rules over. In verse 12, in indignation thou didst march through the earth. This, this um, fury stepped through the land is literally what he's trying to say. In anger thou didst trample the nations. Your wrath tread down the peoples of the world. You're, they're not going to stop him. There's nothing they're going to throw at him that's going to cause any um, slowing of what he's going to do. And they don't repent. Remember in chapter 9, a couple places, a couple other places, I think, I don't remember the next one, but they refuse to repent. They're blaspheming him in the book of Revelation. That's how they're going to respond. Why wouldn't they fall in worship? Why wouldn't they bow before him and confess? They don't want him, generally. You go find the few that do. The few that are going to respond when when their sin is pointed out and the Holy Spirit convicts them. And they're open to this salvation because that's what he's offering. Thou didst go forth, in verse 13, for the salvation of thy people. I think it's more general. It can be nation, but I, and I think that applied to Judah, but it's also going to be for the righteous. He's going to physically deliver the righteous. And he says, thou didst go forth for the salvation of thine anointed, the king of Israel. Could be a reference ultimately to the Messiah who is going to be put back on the throne even though they executed him but initially to the kings of Israel that a descendant of David would rule. So that it strike the head of the house of Israel, evil, I think it's a direct reference to Satan. You don't have to agree with me as you go through here, but it, it literally means he crushed the head of the wicked one to lay him open from thigh to neck. What do you call that? Dead. You can't live through that. This is all he's trying to bring up poetically. Selah, stop and think about that. Satan is gone. He's judging the nations. What are you following? What are you worried about? What are you focused on? What are you out to, to impress? Who do you want to have somebody say to you, well done? The world? They'll turn on you in an instant. Soon as you go along with their latest uh, idea, their latest freedom, the latest sin that they want to have. And so as he closes this whole thing off, the, the revenge of God is clear. Meditate on that. Verse 14, thou didst pierce with his own spears the head of his throngs. You bore him through with these shafts. These arrows would be a simple way to put it. The head of his warriors. He took them out. They stormed in to scatter us. They came in like a whirlwind. They're raging upon them. And their exultation was like those who devour the oppressed. Thou didst tread on the sea with thy horses. On the surge of many waters, this overwhelming force, these armies of the kings that are going to gather together one day, the nation of the Chaldeans, which they thought was invincible. It would never happen, and in one night, toast. Who do you worship today? It's not about music. Habakkuk didn't leave us any. He just left us the words. You could write your own song, but it'd be better if it was in Hebrew. It'd rhyme. It'd flow. 
Who do you worship? Do you have to come to church on Sunday to worship? No. Worship is 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Gathering of the church body is not about worship. You can do it corporately, and it's not a bad thing. You're doing it all the time. It's about fellowship. That's what the Lord's Supper reminds us of. How are you getting along with each other? Because that checks your spiritual temperature in relation to your walk with God. It's about instruction. And it's about this guy standing up here and threatening you and, and giving you all kinds of ideas and moving you along. And you go, yes, let's go get him. And you storm out the door to save the world. Okay, skip the last one. That's not my style. I want to reach people as I watch our world crumble. Believe me, I've asked God if I could move. Texas, Florida, the moon. I don't know if they're selling anything up there. And what does God keep saying to me for 35 years? I'll be here to turn the light off. And if that's the case, I better be here making a difference. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this long passage and a lot of information in there. But for a vivid reminder that you are in control that you love all peoples, that you're not willing that any should perish. It's not your goal to send anyone to hell. And you did everything you could to stop that by sending your own son to die on the cross for our sins, even as we mocked, we scorned him, ridiculed him. He's dying in our place. Thank you for that salvation for each one here who has it. If there be anyone here or listen to me that does not know you, that they realize that free gift is available to them right now to put their trust in Jesus Christ, to let him become their deliverer, their rescuer. So help us to help them to understand that message of Christ's death and resurrection that can deliver them and give them eternal life. Thank you for the reminder, Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.